Welcome to Funny, They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics with explicitly Jewish content. I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No No relation. relation. Hey, Brandon, we're back. Hello, Henry. We are back in uh, what's going to be the last episode recorded in the waning days of 2020. And I, like most of the world, cannot wait for this year to be behind us. Yeah, you'll probably listen to it in uh, 2021. So, we, you know, we are fond of time travel here. So um, have fun with that time travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us know if there's anything we should be looking out for in the early days of 2021. (laughs) Brandon, stay where you are. 2021 (laughs) is more horror than you could ever have imagined. The space lizards have arrived. Do they have Uh, comics in 2021? Who are we covering today? Henry, I am so excited. We are covering the Sandman. I can't believe it because I love Morpheus. I love Neil Gaiman. I just, I, I can't wait to cover the Endless. And No, Brandon, it's not that Sandman. Wait, what? No, we, it's a totally different Sandman. This is a Sandman named Wesley Dodds. Oh my gosh, you're with killing me? me with these legacy characters in DC. <laughs> so Wesley Dodds is the original Sandman. He was created by writer Gardner Fox, co-creator of many classic DC characters like The Flash, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, Zatanna. And he was also co-created with Bert Christman. His look is sort of a classy, classically green business suit, always wears a fedora and a gas mask. And it's sort of like this frightening look you could see how uh criminals would be scared of it and his he doesn't have any actual powers but he has a gun that emits a sleeping gas to sedate criminals so he's sort of like a detective with some gadgets like you know early probably batman inspired Um, sure it sounds like he's kind of like there at the threshold when superheroes are first developing and they're kind of not that much of a different there's not that much of a difference between superheroes and say explorers like the shadow or the phantom and all of those sort of more um pulp hero characters that are more detective than superhero absolutely and as you mentioned it, it's not only one of the earliest superheroes but San, the sandman is one of the early early superheroes his first appearance was in world's fair comics number one in 1939 which featured several standalone stories of various heroes that had already been created at that point at the world's fair um there weren't many so far there was superman batman and wonder woman the first three then a few other characters who would later be in the justice society of america uh this is so early that this was actually Superman's first appearance outside of action comics. Like the Superman uh, series hadn't started yet. So Sandman was one of the original members of the Justice Society of America appearing in All-Star Comics number three in 1940. But we're not discussing any of these Golden Age books. We're covering Vertigo comics from the 90s, which might be why you were a little confused at the top of this. Right, right. No, it's all coming back together to me now. And in case you are confused, listeners, uh, we are talking Vertigo comics from the 90s, but not Count Vertigo, the Vlatovan royalty figure that we covered two episodes episodes ago um, with Rambon. We are talking about Vertigo, the publishing imprint. So let's discuss what that is. Uh, at some point in the early 90s, I think DC essentially noticed that some of its more mature 
mature and mostly out of continuity books were gaining a lot of popularity. These were things like Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which had already been running. Um, and so they decided to make a publishing imprint, which debuted in January 1993 under the visionary leadership of head editor Karen Berger. They had a publishing plan to essentially produce two new titles every month. One could be ongoing, one could be a limited series. So the very first published Vertigo title in that first month, once again, January 1993, was actually Death, The High Cost of Living, a spinoff from that aforementioned Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. The second month of publication in that plan saw the debut of a brand new ongoing series, which was titled Sandman Mystery theater. So clearly it must have been trying to take advantage of the popularity of Neil Gaiman's character, even though there was no relation as discussed, although there's a slight crossover in the first issue of Neil Gaiman's Sandman. We really shouldn't get lost in that. What is Sandman Mystery Theater? It's this really cool, mature look at the Golden Age Sandman you told us about, Henry, Wesley Dodds, and it's much more of a noir and crime book than a superhero one, kind of paying homage to that early development we were discussing. Um, and it emphasizes long-form storytelling. I think most of the story arcs are four-parters at the very least, and it slowly moves throughout the course of the year of 1939 to sort of the full buildup of superhero teams like the Justice Society, as you mentioned. We're looking at a four-part story that, in a retcon, seems to be the first team-up of Wesley Dodds, the Sandman, with the original Starman, Ted Knight. Starman is another very early Justice Society member who appeared for the first time a year after Sandman in Adventure Comics number 61 in 1941. It also, in a retcon, introduces a classic Starman and Justice Society villain named The Mist, and he first appeared just six issues after Starman in Adventure Comics in the same year. And he also served as a member of the Injustice Society which is a famous uh, anti-justice society group. So a lot of kind of uh, retroactive firsts here, which is kind of fun. They're sort of playing with history, but it had never been written. So why not? Right. And if you are listening, listener, and thinking to yourself, boy, I thought I subscribed to a Jewish comics podcast, and all I'm hearing is a lot of comic book and not very much by way of Judaism. I'm here to let you know that Judaism is coming. We had to do things a little bit different this time because, as Henry was said, so much of this involves um, retconning and re-exploring the origin of these classic 1930s and 1940s superheroes that we wanted to make sure to give everybody a little grounding um, and actually the story we've picked is going to have some pretty interesting and possibly even controversial Jewish content for us today, but we need to give a lot of background to make sure that you're not lost in just a few moments when we dive into it. So I'm going to describe and essentially summarize the first two parts of the story. We're going to cut off anything that's irrelevant and really just focus on the stuff you need to know to understand the Jewish content we're going to see. So the most straightforward way to explain the story running in the background of uh, our comics today is that the U.S. government in 1939 has organized and commissioned a secret conference to evaluate new potential combat devices. They're basically getting ready for the possibility of war around the corner. Uh, a guy named Professor Smythe, uh, the missed supervillain that Henry mentioned, but before he's a supervillain, Professor Smythe is developing his own project, but he needs funding to keep perfecting it. So in order to pay for his device and all of its supplies and needs, he begins working for 
actually a group of Jewish gangsters. And there are only two of them that we really get to know by name. One of them is Georgie Cohen, and he is the leader of the bunch. He is very much the head of this Jewish gang. And the other one is Happy Weiss, uh, an individual who is not really the muscle, but seems to be the right-hand man, the one who's whipping people into shape. One of the uh, aspects of society that he's whipping into shape is the labor unions around all the shipping docks. These gangsters are maintaining power through control of Jewish labor unions. And in tightening that control, they refused to help a German boat load and unload its supplies because its workers were non-union. One of these workers, Frederick Baderstadt, will come into play. So, oh boy, that's a lot of stuff. But really, Henry, let's take a moment and talk about Jewish gangsters and labor unions. Yeah, Jews in the early part of the 20th century in this country were also involved in organized crime, just like many immigrant ethnic groups um, coming into this country. Notable mobsters included Bugsy Siegel, Arnold Rothstein, Mayor Lansky, and they were involved in all the things. Um, well, and they were involved in all sorts of things, narcotics, trafficking, racketeering, gambling, loan sharking, money, laundering, murder, extortion, anything that you might find in a mobster film or in uh, reality. Yeah, one in for in- a dime, in for a dollar, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Like and um, when looking at this, and I'd certainly love to learn more, but one interesting thing was that many of them would, uh, when um, the police were after them or they were taken up on charges, would try to seek refuge in Israel. And uh, after 1948, using the law of return. And in 1970, Golda Meir famously did not let Mayor Lansky in. And one of the things they were involved in were labor unions, like many um, branches of organized crime in Italian mafia or uh, other mafias, different, they're involved in different labor unions. So this is sort of one of those things, which to me, I feel sort of conflicted about because the importance of unions, yet their connection to organized crime is troubling. And in this case, Jewish connection to crime is troubling. And it sort of asked the question right off the bat, is this the kind of rep- representation we want to see in a comic is Jewish mobsters or does it reflect, right. or does it refre- reflect reality? Yeah, and I tend to lean towards that ladder of thinking this is somewhat historical. As you just said, this is not exactly a made up uh, idea that there were Jewish controlled mobs that were involved in labor unions. What we're going to see and what I like is that we're going to see actually a fairly wide variety of Jewish representation. I think this might be one of the first stories we've covered. Uh, we've covered ones before where there's multiple Jewish characters, but never ones where I think there's so many different aspects of Jewish society. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Henry, uh, what's the first issue we're diving into? The first comic we're looking at is Sandman Mystery Theater, number 39, June 1996, The Mist, Act 304, written by Matt Wagner and Stephen T. Siegel, penciled and inked by Guy Davis, colored by David Hamung, lettered by John Costanza, edited by Karen Berger and Carrie Kowalski. And we should say neither Matt Wagner nor Steven Siegel are Jewish. So they join our ranks of writers writing about Judaism um, without being Jewish themselves. And we'll see how they do. So on page seven is really our first uh, appearance of some Jewish content. We'll talk about if it's Jewish content or not. But Smythe is buying materials for his machine. And he seems to be buying them in sort of like a... I don't know if it's CD, but 
secretive. I don't know. Um, but anyway, the salesman is a Hasidic Jew with Payas selling ingots of platinum and upping, he keeps upping the price more and more. And Smythe is arguing with him. And there's some definite visual cues here, which is he looks like a Hasidic Jew. Yeah. This guy is wearing a white shirt, black suspenders, a long beard, a black kippah. Um, he's about as Jewish looking as it gets. And in fact, he does look like a Jewish guy you would see working in maybe the diamond district, right? Like this, yeah. is, this doesn't look too different from, um, from the diamond district or various jewelry districts in modern day New York. In fact, I think I mentioned to it, it to you, Henry, when we were prepping for this, uh, it, it it kind of looks like a 1930s version of a scene from Uncut Gems, the Adam Sandler movie from last year, totally. um, which goes fully into this aspect of Jewish life. Yeah. And so you brought up is or go ahead, Henry. What was your point about this? Well, is this good Jewish at this, at least at this point, is this good Jewish representation or bad representation, you know, having a squabble over money or, you know, or I think, you know, that question will come more into play once we get into the Jewish mobsters. But here we have a stereotypical Hasidic person uh, squabbling about money. You know, is that is that good or bad? Yeah, I think that the comic, to me, it feels like it kind of goes out of its way to establish he's not bumping up the price for no reason. He's bumping up the price because it costs him more to acquire these ingots of platinum. It costs more to acquire it. And so therefore the price has to go up accordingly. Like I felt like my sympathy was fully with, uh, with these, these Jewish salesmen. One other fact that I want to bring up, um, Henry, as you've been convincing me over and over again throughout this podcast, because comic books are such a visual medium, sometimes an image alone is enough to suffice as quality Jewish com content. And for me, seeing the salesman looking so uh, blatantly Jewish, even though there's, of course, we could get into a debate over what does it mean to look Jewish, there's certain signifiers that certainly uh, let people know you're a particular type of Jewish. This guy is a Hasidic Jew, and it's kind of nice to see Hasidic Jews in comic books. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I don't, Great. yeah, I don't think it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's always nice to see that. Page 19, we come back to Frederick, the German dock worker. And since his boat was destroyed by Smythe's machine, he has been taken in by self proclaimed fifth column of Nazi sympathizers in the US. And his benefactor um, is bringing him to meet this secretive gathering of essentially white nationalists in 1930s New York um, and introduces him to the leader of this group, Mr. Slowey. Now, Mr. Slowey is speaking with a red flag with the Nazi swastika quite blatantly upon it behind him uh, and talking to Frederick about the destruction of uh, his ship. And so I, I actually want to bring us in and focus. They're going back and forth about did a torpedo destroy the ship? What happened? Was it sent because of, quote, angry Jewish union leaders as a lesson to other strong-willed Germans like yourself. Slowey is trying to um, sweet-talk Frederick and convince him to join with them. And Frederick starts saying that he hadn't thought about that. And instead, Slowey interrupts saying, hadn't made the connection yet? I am not surprised. The taint of Zionism lingers over the wide world, yet it is deceptive in its simplicity especially here in New York City, where the Jew is strong and unconfronted. There are even American Jews who have set themselves against the Reich and its righteous destiny. Um, so that's possibly the most discomforting 
bit of dialogue I have ever read uh, for the purposes of this podcast to sort of read this spewing of um, Zionist conspiracy theory, this calling out of the Jewish people. It feels very um, protocols of the elders of Zion. It is really uncomfortable. And also, as we're talking about an issue that kind of grapples with different difficult elements of Jewish history, um, you know, I think the comic does a pretty good job of indicating these are not the good guys, right? Like these guys and what they're espousing is crazy talk. Yeah. And it was, it, it's always shocking to see that kind of stuff on a page, you know, so someone drew a person in front of a swastika and then a panel of people doing a Heil Hitler and saying Sig Heil, like that's not easy stuff to draw or to see or to see when you're a Jewish person who reads comics and it kind of gave me that icky feeling that I had in uh, Moon Knight with the the Nazi who had pretended to be a rabbi. Yeah. And yeah. That, that sort of murder, like a horrible murdering, you know, fictional character. <laughs> I, I, it's feel, this feel, felt the same. It was, you know, obviously I'm not, I think I'm not as angry as I was then, but maybe, maybe I've been desensitized and you're breaking me down, Brandon. No, I mean, I'm going to say a Nazi pretending to be a rabbi kind of takes the cake as far as yeah. wild and crazy fictional trope that really gets comforting. But um, if you'll allow me, Henry, I want to take us down uh, Brandon's history corner, as it were, because Let's do seeing it. this group, it just made me wonder whether or not there was any sort of real life predecessor on which it might be based. And it turns out um, that there were organizations in the United States that were indeed Nazi sympathizer organizations like the German American Bund or the America Deutscher Volksbund. Um, there's a really wonderful 2007 Atlantic article by Alan Taylor about this, as well as some NPR pieces that we are going to reference in a moment. But the German-American Bund was a, an organization formed in 1936 for Americans of German descent. Based on that description, sounds pretty innocent. However, uh, this turned out to be very much a organization that was sympathetic to Hitler and the rising Nazi party in Germany. And in fact, on February 20th, 1939, they held a quote-unquote Americanization rally in Madison Square Garden, New York City. Basically, this was a Nazi gathering and rally in new york in february 1939 the thought of which is terrifying um equally terrifying is the fact it was attended by 20,000 people although counter protesters were also present uh, at this rally they denounced jewish conspiracies they critiqued fdr as being a puppet of the jews um protesters were holding signs that said things like stop jewish domination of christian america um and really terrifying was the headliner of this rally, who was a man in charge of the German-American Bund. This would be Fritz Kuhn. And at the sort of uh, highlight of the evening, deep into it as, as the main event, Fritz Kuhn steps out to the crowd. They're all cheering for him, and he introduces himself. Many thanks to NPR and an episode of Code Switch for the audio we're about to hear. But Fritz Kuhn takes the stage and begins saying, Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, you all have heard of me through the Jewish controlled press. Wake up, you Aryans, Nordics, and Christians, to demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. 
Uh, chilling to hear that audio. Another fun fact, and thanks again to NPR for bringing this forward, a plumber from Brooklyn by the name of Isidore Greenbaum actually snuck into the Nazi crowd, was attending the rally, and sort of slowly muscled his way to the front, got onto the stage itself, took the microphone, and said, down with Hitler! He was attacked, given a black eye, but he did uh, walk away, I think, with relatively minor injuries, and eventually enlisted in the Navy to fight the Nazis. So Isidore, what a badass you are. So the German-American boon itself fell apart in 1939. And just as a little postscript, its leader, Fritz Kuhn, was indicted on embezzlement charges denaturalized and deported in 1945. So in 1939, you have this organization that holds a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden in February. Later that year, it falls apart. And so I would imagine that what Matt Wagner and Steven Siegel are doing is they're looking at that and saying, clearly there must still have been Nazi sympathizers in the US, but after that public falling apart, maybe it makes sense for them to be secretive organizations like the one we see in this comic rather than very public ones. So I just thought it was really interesting to see as terrifying as this imagery is, it's probably indicative of things that really happened. The Atlantic article is great. I highly recommend it. And I'll post the link in our show notes on the website. But um, the best part of that Atlantic article is it goes through the whole story of the Bund in uh, pictures. The last shot is a shot of Kuhn being taken away by uh, federal agents uh, on charges of the embezzlement. So on page 22, Smythe is doing another job for the mafia and a taxi drops him off. And he says, Smythe says to the taxi driver, you sure? And the taxi driver says, only synagogue in the neighborhood. Looks closed though. You want, I should wait. And Smythe says, no, no, thank you. It's near here somewhere. And he pulls out a piece of paper. He first looks over and the next panel is clearly of a synagogue. And he looks at a piece of smudged paper Take a takes a sip of uh, his bottle and makes his machine blow up a building. Right. So clearly Smythe is uh, an alcoholic. He's drunk. Uh, he doesn't have the right number of the house that he's going to blow up. And so it's a question, did he blow up the right place or not? Um, and that's our cliffhanger for part three. Great cliffhanger, because to me, you and I had to discuss this to make it clear to me it seemed like he was targeting the synagogue and or blew up the synagogue. And, you know, it's, it's drawn in a way where it's a little ambiguous. I mean, there's, there's obviously there's, there's the address aspect to it, but visually it just, it looked a little confusing. I wasn't sure. And that was like a shocking thing to, to end on. Yeah. I think that, uh, and we, we spoke about this before, but I think, I think he's targeting someone who's Jewish and the idea is that a lot of the Jews live near the synagogue. And so he took the taxi to the synagogue to be close to the Jewish neighborhood as it were, and then was trying to target the right building. So I don't, I don't think he was targeting the synagogue. He was targeting a building. Um, And in fact, we're going to find out in the next issue, he's trying to get to the rabbi. He's trying to get to the rabbi's house. So the idea that the rabbi would live very close to the synagogue makes a lot of sense. Right. Well, right away, we pick up at the next issue, number 40, July 1996, The Mist Act 404. And on the cover, let's talk about the cover for a second. On the cover is a photograph, not a drawing, of, at least from what I can tell, of a synagogue. And it looks sort of like a grand old 
um, New York synagogue, possibly. I mean, they're in Opal City, but it's definitely a synagogue. And it says in quotes over it, in the temple, words of thunder, call down retribution and death. And Brandon, I mean, I'm assuming this is from the Torah, right? So where is this from? Yeah. Do you remember last episode when Colonel Hakohen assumed that Ramban is quoting Torah, but turns out he's actually just quoting Shakespeare? Yeah. Well, this quote from the cover is neither Torah nor Shakespeare, nor from what I can tell, any quote at all. I think it's an original quote by these writers. They're set it up to make it seem like it's quoting something. But every time I've searched it, all that comes up is some <laughs> New Testament links. And yeah. it's not like it's a quote from the New Testament. It's like the words retribution and death brought up a verse. But um, yeah, yeah, I think it's totally original. Yeah, there wouldn't be, I mean, in the Tanakh, they're pro- in, the, in you know, in our our version of the Bible, in the Bible, there probably wouldn't be many references to the temple like that. Right, because yeah, not so much. I mean, at least pre-Solomon, I guess. So once we open up the actual issue on the first page, we see the wreckage of the building and a police investigation. In the third panel, uh, from the other side of the barrier, we see a man with a large white beard and a hat that um, is pretty clearly once again coded as Jewish. And this man is shouting, "We want answers!" To which we have two policemen, Lieutenant Burke and a. Uh, officer who just seems to be working his beat. Lieutenant Burke asks, what's with the fur head over there? Police officer says, oh, he's a rabbi from a couple buildings up. Says it was an attack on his people. Um, to which our rabbinic character then says, yes, and we want to know who caused this and what you will do to prevent further desecration of Jewish homes in... At which point, Lieutenant Burke interrupts him saying, look, Isaac, you know as much as we do right now. Um So I thought this was really interesting, Henry, that he, I mean, you asked me, wait, is Isaac some sort of slur? Like, does he know this guy's name or is this a slur? And I think it's pretty clear that he doesn't know this rabbi from before. He's using this as a term um, in the same way that you might sort of uh, refer to anyone from a particular cultural or ethnic group and just use a stereotypical name to refer to them. I don't even want to give any other examples because of how uncomfortable the idea makes me. Um, But I did some searching and I found in Uh, an internet site that calls itself the racial slur database. It does indeed list the name Isaac as a slur against Jews. And the proof that it gives um, is a reference to a controversial aspect of the biography of the famous swashbuckling actor, Errol Flynn, who you may know from Robin Hood and other movies. My mom was actually just watching an Errol Flynn movie earlier today, but was um, she really, she really was. What movie really was Uh, Robin Hood. She oh my God, it. we were just yeah. talking about that the other night. I know, it's wild that she was just watching this. And I told her we we're going to record this tonight and talk about it. And she couldn't believe it. And she's like, yeah, I heard that rumor also, uh, but I don't believe it. So the rumor is, um, and maybe it's slightly more than rumor, but biographer Charles Hyham, Hyam, not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Um, he alleges that Flynn was actually secretly a fascist sympathizer. Um, and funny enough, my mom tells me that she grew up with her father, my Zeta, saying that he didn't like Errol Flynn because Errol Flynn was actually a Nazi. So apparently that was a very popular um, idea. And um, the biographer indicates that in an alleged letter to an Austrian member of the Nazi party named Hermann Urban, uh, 
Errol Flynn supposedly wrote, I do wish we could bring Hitler over here to teach these Isaacs a thing or two. Uh, I don't really want to weigh in one way or another about Errol Flynn and whether he was a fascist Nazi sympathizer or not. I want to bring up the fact that it is a matter of controversy in uh scholarship and in biographies. Uh, however, uh, I think the fact that there's this letter makes it pretty clear that at the time, the term Isaacs was indeed being used as a slur uh, against Jews in the 1930s. So um, there you have it. We, uh, Despite the police coming in to um, solve this case, the police officers themselves are anti-Semitic. Yeah, which is probably not unusual and probably right at, spot on for the time. Exactly. Um, by the way, uh, I think a great name for a band would be Herman's Urbans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spelled with a U. Yeah. That way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. <laughs> um, so at page eight, we're in, we're at the synagogue. We're in a shul and the rabbi is giving a sermon. Rabbi Glickman is giving a sermon from the Bima. And I just want to set up some visuals here in the first two panel, first, first two panels. The first panel is a close up of a, uh, Magain David, a Jewish star. And then you see, pulls out a little bit, you see Rabbi Glickman in a white robe with a very long and thin talus. And all the people that are s- sitting in the pews are men with kipot, all in suits, no taluses at all. And there's two other men who sit on the beam at the front and they're dressed like Rabbi Glickman. One is clean shaven and the other is just like a small cropped beard. So Brandon, what is this? Uh, what I can tell you, Henry, is that this is the most orthodox looking rabbi with the most reform looking congregation. Uh, it's, it's absolutely wild why this group would be together. Every bit of the image of the congregation indicates reform. As you said, there's no talisim. They're in full suits. Um, and yet Rabbi Glickman looks as orthodox as orthodox gets. I don't understand with his two fellow rabbis who have different levels of beard, um, it's about as strange as the three rabbis in the movie, a serious man all working at one synagogue. It doesn't make any sense. There's also these weird four pronged candelabras. They're not menorahs, neither the type used in the temple nor the type used at Hanukkah time. They're four pronged. I, I, it's a very weird visual setup. Super weird. It doesn't make any sense. And you know, they're, why are there only men there if it's a reformed temple? There right. is one guy who appears to be wearing a talus, by the way, with this guy with brown hair right under what would be Rabbi Glickman's elbow in the in the one, two, three, fourth panel. If you wow. zoom in here. So he may, he looks like he's wearing a talus, but one person? Yeah, I also don't even know if that's just a coloring er- error. Like when it's just a matter of coloring in a comic book, the sort of... Um, the idea of it being a talus or a scarf or part of the suit, it's really hard to tell. Well, let's see what's what's in the actual words. So um, as you said, Rabbi Glickman is giving his drosh or his sermon, uh, and he says to everyone, Faith, which keeps our heads held high in the face of the society we see crumbling around us, a society which rests on its hands while half a world away, our fellow kind are imprisoned for honoring our Sabbath a society in which the local police refuse to protect us in our own neighborhoods, a society of our own making. For do we not involve ourselves in the dishonest ways of the organized criminal? Are there not those among us who reap unjust profit from the hard luck of their own neighbors? So I'll admit, 
pretty fiery social justice sermon. Like this is a, a pretty good state of how are things going on, calling things out. This rabbi is both uh, referencing the activities happening in Hitler's Germany. And that's what it means when he talks about the idea of uh, fellow kind being imprisoned for honoring our Sabbath. In other words, it's becoming a crime to be Jewish in some places. Um, he references the fact that the police refuse to help protect Jews because they are a minority. Um, and he also starts calling out um the the organized crime the the mafia members that we know um georgie cohen and happy weiss so you know there's not any torah in this there's not any uh sukim or verses that are being referenced there's nothing to that really other than the fact that he talks about the sabbath there's nothing that marks this as jewish like you could easily see uh any sort of presbyterian or methodist or really any christian pastor giving this exact same sermon for the most part but you know at least it's something that i can get behind it's a nice little like i said it's a nice social justice sermon i liked it yeah yeah, yeah. great so then we do have these the Frederick and the man who is uh, indoctrinating him into the fifth column sneak out. Turns out they've been pretending to be Jewish to listen and I guess get a sense of this rabbi. So they immediately remove their kippot because they are in disguise. Um, and then on page nine, we find out that this is like the most popular synagogue in all of New York, the happening place to be because not only the bad guys try to get in, but um, Wesley Dodds, our hero was also undercover at this synagogue. Um, and he sneaks out and he goes to a phone booth and he calls Diane. Now, we have not mentioned Diane so far, but she is Wesley Dodd's love interest, and she might be one of my just like the best part of the story. She's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah, she's not, She's and she's not just his uh, love interest. She's definitely kind of a partner in heroism. You know, I would say partner in crime, but he's not a criminal. He's a hero. Like, she she kind of, like, helps him out and, and is very supportive and She's, I don't even want to say sidekick because she's more than that. She's just like a good partner for him. She's very much a sort of spunky, intelligent, confident woman who won't take no for an answer and pushes. And she is not just sort of the meek and demure love interest, but rather she's very much Wesley's equal, which is a wonderful thing to see. So she reminds really- me very oh, much yeah. of, of how Lois Lane was portrayed in the early in the late thirties and in the early forties, she's, she's tough as nails and you don't want to mess with her. Totally. Completely. Completely. And she's also a really wonderful support for Wesley. So mm-hmm. um, he can call her and we have this beautiful panel in which you see this character wearing a keeper because he does not immediately take it off when he leaves. It's really cool to see him wearing a keeper, um, which also brings up, by the way, Henry, is this happening on Shabbat? Is this a, a <laughs> random like Monday or Thursday morning? It's a packed it, house. <laughs> it's a packed house. And yet he doesn't seem to care at all about going and wearing a keeper and then using a payphone. So again, maybe it's a reform synagogue. Maybe, uh, maybe it was maybe like Shabbat. Maybe, maybe it was suit code or something, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> we're not really sure, but, um, in any case, we see our Wesley making this phone call and he lets Diane know, listen, I'm attending services at the synagogue and they're running longer than I ever thought possible. Why the sudden conversion? Hey, so we got like this <laughs> nice little joke. I love the idea. Wesley, if you think this service is longer than you thought possible, just come back on Yom Kippur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
That's like so. Um, he's watching the rabbi. The rabbi walks home, refuses to be afraid. And we're going to jump forward to another conversation between Wesley and Diane on page 16, where Diane's essentially recommending that he should just turn this over to the police, let the police uh, protect the rabbi from the mafia and from anyone else going after him. Um, and Wesley's essentially arguing that because the police are anti-Semitic, that's a terrible idea. So uh, let's hear the dialogue, Henry. You'll be Diane and I'll continue being Wesley. Great. They're certainly better suited for... For screaming a pack of my best for some damn kike into my ear. And that's if he were in a good mood. Besides, this rabbi is, well, personal for me. Diane, I've never told you this, but my mother was Jewish. She was? But you celebrate Christmas and... And my father was Catholic. Against both families' wishes, they eloped to Maryland. After she died, when my father was overseas, her family curtly pronounced it was God's will for her marrying outside the faith. My father's family just quietly considered it good riddance, I'm sure. Oh, Wesley. As a result, I've never found much solace in either religion. That's partly why I've embraced the Eastern philosophies. Anyhow, with all this festering hatred for Jews in the world right now, this is one crime I feel personally driven to stop. Not because of dreams. Just as a refusal to allow this righteous-minded man to be cut down by the ugly underside of his own people. I, I understand. I just worry about you, so. And boom, there it is. The reason more than any other that we're covering the story, listeners, um, Wesley Dodds, the Sandman reveals in 1996, almost 60 full years after his debut, uh, that the character is Jewish or at least has a Jewish parent. Um, he identifies as having a Jewish mother. It's pretty clear from his language that he doesn't seem to identify with Judaism personally. It's not an identity that is his so much as a heritage that he has. It's his mother's identity, not his own. But it's pretty cool that we have a character with a Jewish mother who cares about protecting the Jewish people in this case. And also, I think, is our first instance that we've covered, Henry, of a character who's from an interfaith background. Yeah, and certainly the the sort of coming out was amazing. Like the, she seemed like a pretty close confidant, but this never came up. So this both was a big deal to him the way he came out to her as a Jew, and it was very natural and trusting. And she reacted in a perfect way, just totally. saying, "I'm concerned about you." Like that's all. Like you know, very much so. It's just powerful to sort of see these words written the way they are. It's really heartbreaking when you read the idea that her family was essentially saying, we have no daughter. She deserved to die for marrying outside the faith. And I'm not too surprised to hear that that might be happening in um, some 1930s intermarriage. We know that it continues to be a live issue in the Jewish community today. So on page 17, Friedrich is sent on a mission by these Nazi sympathizers to sneak into Rabbi Glickman's apartment and kill him. And so he's climbing up the drain pipe and it seems like he's conflicted about this, but that's what he's going sneaking in to do. And the shot is set up where you're seeing first um, Rabbi Glickman's back. So it's sort of from the perspective of Friedrich. And this is what the dialogue says. Master of the universe, I hereby forgive anyone who angered or antagonized me 
or who sinned against me, whether against my body, my property, my honor, or against anything of mine. And, you know, I don't, this sounded familiar, Brandon, but what, what is this from? Henry, this is the bedtime Shema. It is so, I, I, <laughs> I swear I haven't geeked out in a long time over Jewish content the way I did upon reading the bedtime Shema in a comic book. So, um, Listeners, you may or may not know, um, the Shema is recited in both the morning and the evening, and that comes down to the fact that there's lines in the Shema itself that says that you should recite these words when you lie down and when you rise up. And so we do that in the services publicly, but also there is a tradition of reciting the Shema literally when you lie down to go to sleep. Um, And so one of the final prayers you might recite at night is something called the bedtime Shema. And of course, in Judaism, the way prayer works is anytime you have something to say over generations, more and more gets added to it. So in addition to the text of the Shema itself, you actually begin by reciting a prayer for forgiveness. Um, And Henry, I'm going to go ahead and read this prayer from for you. Um, It comes straight from my Koran Sachs Sidur. Um, And if you would, wouldn't mind just translating for us as I read each bit and phrase. Ribono Shalom. Master of the universe. Hareni Mochel. I hereby forgive anyone. Lecholmi Shehichis Vehiknitoti. Who have angered or antagonized me. O Shechata Kenegdi. Or who have sinned against me. Bain Bagufi. Whether against my body. Bain Bamamoni. My property. Bain Bichvodi. My honor. Or against anything that was mine. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. It's pretty close. (laughs) That comic is like as close as it gets. Um, It's pretty amazing. So we have this. And just so people know, by the way, this practice and this idea of reciting prayers for forgiveness goes back. It's probably rooted in the Talmud, specifically Megillah 28a, where we get a statement about Marzutra that when he would go to bed at night, he would first say, I forgive anyone who has vexed me. Um, So here we have it. We have this ritual that is both uh, common and that it's found in most Cedarim, I think, especially Orthodox and conservative Cedarim, but probably not the most well-known. And yet it's being accurately represented in the pages of this comic. It's so cool. (laughs) It's so cool. Is the idea, Brandon, that the rabbis were very concerned with when you went to sleep that actually was dangerous, like you might might die or you might not wake up um, or you may you are dead a little bit is also a a sort of a rabbinic idea. So is the point then to forgive anyone to do confession as if you're about to die when you go to sleep? Yeah, I think it's very much a part of it. And the way that forgiveness and atonement works in Judaism is that two things wipe clean someone's sins. Those two things are Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and death. Death itself acts as a way of wiping clean your sins. But as we know, Yom Kippur doesn't really do much when it comes to disagreements or sins between one human being and another, unless they've sort of made peace with each other. So I think the idea here is um, that you're stating that you're not holding a grudge and you've forgiven everyone, um, in part for your own sake, but I also think in part... God forbid you should die without being able to forgive this person, and then God would hold it against them, right? It's very much, um, you know, when I would work on campus, I'd talk to students who would often ask me a lot, what happens, what happens? 
happens if I'm not ready to forgive somebody? What happens if I've done something so horrible that I can't forgive them? And we would actually sit down and look at the different levels of forgiveness in Judaism. There's at least three different words for forgiveness. And this is also because I've had this conversation with students a lot. Um, that's why I recognize the bedtime Shema immediately because it comes up. Um, but there's this idea in Judaism, I think, that even if you can't actually offer um, mechila or slicha, even if you can't offer pardon or forgiveness to per- a person, you can at least say, I don't want them to be punished on my account. Don't let the fact that they've done something wrong against me mean that they're somehow deserving of this horrible divine punishment. Um, so I think that's what this prayer is really rooted in the idea of like, what a shame it would be for you to die and having not forgiven someone, they then, you know, get punished or suffer for the rest of their life. Cool. Thank you. No problem. And just so that everybody knows, by the way, in case you're concerned, that's the end of our Jewish content here with this story. Um, But in case you got invested, Wesley Dodds saves the day. He saves Rabbi Glickman's life. uh, And Smythe winds up the victim of his own device, which we refer to it as blowing things up. But what it really does is make things disappear. And it caused Smythe to disappear. But rather than disappearing entirely from the world, he disappeared, turning into nothing but mist, um, hence the origin of both the comic's name, the mist, uh, and also the villain, the mist. Great. Next, we're going to look at Vertigo Winter's Edge number one, January 1998. This is Vertigo's version of a uh, holiday book that Brandon and I have looked at many DC and Marvel holiday books. So this is the imprint Vertigo's version of that. The name of the story is Spirit of the Season, written by Matt Wagner and Stephen T. Siegel, penciled and inked by John K. Snyder III, colored by Bjarne Hansen, and edited by Karen Berger. All right. Gotta love Karen Berger. So on page one, we see Wesley doing some Christmas shopping with Diane. Um, We're recording this uh, just on December 27th. So um, we're just past that season that we're reading about. Um, And Diane and Wesley decide to split up and go in different directions. And Wesley heads off uh, towards a synagogue, actually. And on his way, he encounters a man dressed as Santa Claus and talking to him. Henry how do you feel about Santa Claus speaking to Wesley right in front of a giant synagogue? Well, um, unless he's a Jewish person who's working on Christmas Eve, I don't love it. Yeah, it kind of bothers me in that this is a winter special. A lot of times comics would produce winter specials or holiday specials where it's pretty clear that the title's a euphemism. Like what they really mean is it's a Christmas special, right? Nine out of 10 stories will be a Christmas special and maybe one will be a Hanukkah story, right? They kind of throw it in as like a token. There's some other thing going on. Right. And And I, and I, I just want to say, Brandon, I have now been conditioned to flip if, you know, if I'm in the comic book shop, Oh, the, the DC holiday special from this year came out, I'll, you know, grab it. I'll be, I'm conditioned now to flip, you know, first to the table of contents to see what the stories are called. And then to find if there's a, a, if they threw us a bone this year and gave us a hot, at least a Hanukkah story, even though Hanukkah isn't directly related to Christmas in any way, shape or form. Right. But it's a winter story. And honestly, we as Jews are doing a lot better than say any readers who might celebrate Diwali or right. uh, Muslim readers who are right. like, well, I never see Eid representation, whatever it right. is. So we're lucky that we get thrown that bone, I suppose. I mean, I don't mean to say that it's like, oh, thank you for throwing it. But like, we, we at least get that. But yeah, right. it's, it's frustrating that in the one story that's dedicated to Jewish experience, 
the first page of it still has to insist on having Santa Claus, this like Christmas image. And again, I, I know that we have listeners and people who come from an interfaith background. Um, and so I know that for some of our listeners, I'd imagine that Christmas is an important part of your experience, whether growing up or in connecting with family. And I'm just saying that when I get Jewish representation in a book, that's already very clearly a Christmas special. I just kind of want some Jewish things that are on their own. Yep. Um, but maybe, maybe this is, you know, maybe it's an intentional thematic decision because Wesley uh, comes from an interfaith background, regardless on page two, Wesley enters the synagogue, walks up to a wall and it's pretty clearly a wall of names. It's a memorial wall that has memorial lights. And we actually see Marina Dodds, 1888 to 1917. There is a room for a candle in front of her name, but it's not lit. And there are other names in which there are candles lit. And you realize these are observance plaques for yard sites for community members. And I never in my life did I think that I would find a comic book that had uh, that level of Jewish content that it would show these memorial plaques. You also thought there's something interesting about the this particular memorial wall. If his mother Marina Dodds has a plaque there, does that mean that this was the Dodds shul that he didn't go to growing up? You know, like is this is this where hypothetically he was bar mitzvah, or or was it just? You know, that was the rabbi in town that did did their funeral. I mean, and they got they got a plaque. Right. So, so I, that he had somewhere to go for 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 the art site. I think it's probably the second Henry, because interestingly enough, um, two years ago when my dad died, uh, the cemetery where we buried him um, was pretty close to my mom's cousin's house and synagogue. So we buried him on a Friday. We went to sit Shiva at my cousin, my mom's cousin's house. And then we drove to uh, his synagogue to be able to go to Shabbat services um, and say Kaddish that evening. And when we got there, they added his name to the Kaddish list. Um, and then we went off and we literally never went back to that synagogue. And two years later, uh, when approaching the date of my father's second yard site, we actually received an email from that synagogue letting us know we're including his name in our list of people to be remembered on this date. And we just wanted to let you know. And, you know, um, it was very touching and very sweet. We don't... It, it's my cousin. It's my mom's cousin's synagogue. It's not mine. And yet, because we were there at that time of his death, they have taken it upon themselves to continue remembering him. So I think it's entirely possible that this is a synagogue to which they had no connection whatsoever. Um, and either, you know, either Wesley paid for them to remember his mom because he is a pretty well-off guy, or like you said, maybe this was uh, the synagogue where a clergy person did her funeral. That's really sweet about that synagogue. Yeah, it was really it was really nice to receive that email. Very kind. Um, there's some weird back, stuff on this page, though, Brad. There's some really weird <laughs> stuff. So before we fully get into the weird stuff, uh, let's just also acknowledge um, because it is 1939, these are not electronic lights that you just screw into the wall like bulbs. Uh, they're actual candles that get lit. And I think Henry, you're bringing up like. How is this not a fire hazard? Yeah, I know. That does not seem safe, even for 1939. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I have no, I mean, I, I went to a synagogue that was around for a very long time and everything was electronic there. You know, I would think even back in the 30s, they wouldn't have had that. This seems like an oversight, like the artists and or writers have the vision of people coming in to a church 
and lighting a candle for someone, which we're going to get into the, that imagery yeah. in a second, but that's what it sort of, it sort of seems like they were a little confused by that. It, it could be. So let's just dive into the stuff that's weird. So as we said, Marina's uh, Marina Dodd's light candle is unlit. Um, Wesley speaks to the rabbi there and lets him know, oh, I paid for a plaque. I thought that would include the candle, sort of implying the idea of, is there an extra fee? Did I not pay the bit to be able to, to get the candle lit as well? Um so the first immediately strange thing about this rabbi is it's pretty clear from every other panel we've seen that it is nighttime. They're doing some after work shopping, him and Diane. Uh, it is very much the evening. And this rabbi is full on wearing tefillin, yeah. um, which yeah. you also another clue that it's nighttime is they've lit the Hanukkah candles. It's the sixth yeah. night of Hanukkah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good call on that. Yeah. And yet this rabbi is alone in the shul. Um, and let's let's Wesley know um, it turns out he got the date wrong and actually uh, it was lit last week. Her yard site was last week. Maybe it was the English date. It could be. Yeah. Wesley could be remembering the wrong, the wrong or could be going by English date. He realizes it very quickly. Um, and then the rabbi proceeds to say um, a very shocking thing. He says she was remembered and you should not feel bad about that. She had her time on earth and now is your time. Do not dwell. Um, what the hell, Henry? It just like, <laughs> have you ever heard a rabbi say anything like that? I've never heard a rabbi say anything like that. Theologically. I've never heard any rabbi say like, if what the rabbi is going for is to comfort the mourners, then he's missing. I don't actually think this is a comfort of the mourners. Just don't worry about your dead relative. Who cares? You should live. She would want you to continue living. Like that does not right. sound Jewish to me. It doesn't do a good job of actually comforting somebody. Um, and actually, the point of a yard site candle is to remember the person, yeah. like very much. So much of Jewish ritual around mourning is about remembrance. So the idea of like, don't feel bad about it is so bizarre. He then, the rabbi then gives Wesley um, a card that has the Kaddish prayer, mourner's Kaddish printed on it. Um, he just refers to it as a mourning prayer. Um called Kaddish and then says many find comfort speaking these words for friends and loved ones gone say this for your mother and all will be well okay where to begin <laughs> um I feel like this synagogue must be reform and the reason I say that is because no other movement that I'm aware of in the 1930s would even think about extending the Kaddish prayer to friends just to saying it for friends um the mourner's cottage was originally only really to be said i believe for your parents and then over time extended to any relative that is one relationship away from you meaning your parents your children your siblings your spouses but in traditional judaism and in jewish history you do not recite it for anyone who is further relationship than that, or definitely not a actual familial relationship. Now, of course, over time, it gets developed and extends, especially after the Holocaust. There's this idea of remembering people who have no one else to remember them. And so nowadays, I often would have students and people who are also saying Kaddish for um, friends from camp, for distant cousins, right? It gets recited a lot, but definitely in the 1930s, that would not be the case. It feels very strange. Second thing, to just hand a card that has the prayer and not educate them about what it is. Terrible rabbi, not doing well. Um, there's no background on the Kaddish. There's no help reciting it when this is not an easy prayer, right? Um, Henry, what is it? It's that you in Aramaic. Say? Right. Many 
people who even have like good Hebrew skills can struggle with Aramaic because it's actually a different language using the same characters. There's no help reciting it. And there's no mention of the fact that to recite the mourner's Kaddish, you need a minion. You need nine other people there to be able to recite it. So the whole point of the mourner's Kaddish is that it's a communal prayer that you have the support of the community saying, Amen, responding to certain bless or to certain lines. Uh, it's, it's, kind of maddening to see yeah. this <laughs> all right brandon uh, i need you to take a breath <laughs> and a sip of yeah. water <laughs> yeah thank you calm me down <laughs> okay so i want to offer you know we've done this from time to time where i want to offer a generous explanation okay you know in the old days even when i was a kid um there was like a a guy at the shul taking care of the shul he was called a shamus or sometimes a shomer basically a Jewish caretaker. Like he was in charge of the tzedakah box at Minyan. He, he would set up candles if needed be, if it was Hanukkah time, he locks up at, you know, like, and maybe, so maybe that's what this guy is. Maybe it's not the rabbi. And maybe he like, is this crazy old guy, this crazy altacocker that wears filling all day and it's like oh that's just his thing he but he does a nice job he helps us get this place set up he you know he's he always makes a minion you know like what do you think Henry, about that as always one of the things i love most about you is your earnest attempt to always find something that's like <laughs> positive or great or a way to spin things in these beautiful ways and i i i love that and i think my pushback and my frustration is um I'm a rabbi and you are a Jewish educator married to a rabbi with other rabbis in your family. And we're bending over backwards to explain why this might be the case. What are the odds that the average reader who stumbles upon this is going to read this and think anything right. other than, well, this is Judaism and this must be the way Judaism works. And that's what's right. so frustrating is even if we could kind of bend over backwards and no prize this away and say, here's the canonical in-story reason why this person's getting it wrong it just winds up misrepresenting Judaism in a way that I think is anywhere from troubling to irresponsible, depending on how much weight we want to place upon writers when right. they're representing Judaism. Right. right. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. On page three, Wesley is reflecting on the Kaddish and he calls the word simple. All I'll really say is uh, we already described that there's an Aramaic and uh, say that to all the people I've ever seen stumbling over the words of the Kaddish at the graveside of their loved one, that the words are simple. Um, right. It's It's really frustrating. Wesley then thinks to himself, as her religion provides for no belief in an afterlife, I'm not even sure why I feel the need to memorialize her after all these years. And once again, Matt Wagner and Steven Siegel are, are oversimplifying Judaism to a degree that I would just call like, it, it, it becomes misrepresentative. It's yeah. so. Yeah. We've yes. talked about this before on the other side where it's like going into the full-blown heaven and hell stuff. And I've like, been totally, like, well, we don't really, you know, <laughs> right. A, and, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Just like there's in Judaism, there's more to that. It's not just a simple thing. We do not believe in an afterlife or we definitely believe in a heaven and hell. Like it's, there's a conversation you need to have about that. You can't just say that in a comic right. book. Zemesubach. It's complicated, right? Yeah. Like, like you may have heard, people commonly say that in Judaism, we don't know whether or not there is a heaven or hell. We don't know what happens after you die. And I think this is, this is the part that maybe got corrupted. 
as a result, there tends to be more focus on this world in the here and now where we do know what's going on rather than what may come. But it's clearly a deep part of rabbinic theology to believe in what's called olam haba, the world to come, something that might be like heaven, might be a resurrection time, but is clearly a after-death life um, of some sort. There's, as again, a lot of questions if you go deep into Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, you eventually get to this idea of um, Gehenna and this idea of sort of a Jewish hell. Like again, you, it is not just a version of Christian heaven and hell, and it is not a nothing exists. It's complicated and it's unknown. And and so to have him saying that just feel again, frustrating. Um, but moving on, we see that in the synagogue, there's a menorah lit, as you already said, Henry, for the sixth night of Hanukkah. Um, and there's a yeah, well, in this there. panel, though, it looks like it's fully lit. So I don't know what's going on here. How long have they been there? <laughs> I will. Get, yeah, fair enough. I will give it some credit that if, if you zoom in, actually, it looks like maybe it's seven. Yeah, now it's seven. It, so it, the last candle doesn't. It's definitely not the last night of Hanukkah, but I don't know. That um, soliloquy he had was uh, took a day and a half. It, it took him a day and a half to read those quote unquote simple words. Yeah, that's right. The cottage, right <laughs> to get through it. That's how simple it was. A whole day passed. Uh, there's a woman who's there to mourn her lost relatives. Um, it's really weird. This we've talked about it before. It's like um, those ragman issues we looked at. Um, in detective comics where it was very clearly just the inside of a church, but drawn as though it were a synagogue. Um, like Judaism, just like people don't just go to a synagogue by themselves and sit there to mourn their loved ones. And they definitely don't go into the sanctuary and sit in uh, the pews or the chairs and do that. Like that's very much a Christian thing. I've seen enough both traveling through Europe and going into churches and also seeing it on TV. Sure. There's this idea that an individual will go for quiet solitude and step into a church and sit in the pews and have some time with themselves. That is not a Jewish thing. Like right. you would I, not do that. You go to synagogue to remember people in community. Right. Right. And like there, there, that may have been like, there may be people that do that, that go to a synagogue late at night Generally, they're not open, but you know, that go to synagogue at night to just sit in silence in the sanctuary. Generally, the sanctuary is not open either, but right, you know, it's closed, like it's, it's definitely like open a bad access. representation. It's not like there, this is your one shot at showing what a, what Judaism looks like. This is not what it generally looks like. There may be in, individual instances, but this is a bad example. It's a very bad example. So page four, this woman, uh, we find out her name's Yara Koroff. She's telling the story that she escaped the Nazis in Warsaw. She came to the United States. She met a man, married him. Uh, he got sick and died. And she's been begging for men to bury her husband. The implication being for days, if not weeks, it just makes me go, what the hell kind of awful yeah. Jewish community is? Right. I've never, like one of the number one meets vote over which you drop almost everything is kibbutz hametz, the honoring of the dead. And like burying a body is one of the most sacred tasks in Judaism. There's an entire group yeah. of people that form a chevra kadisha, right? Like a society that is dedicated to guarding the body, watching over it, ritually cleaning it before being buried. The idea that she'd have to beg people to bury her husband is just incongruous with everything I know about Jewish community. It's just not true. Every this synagogue, this poor woman wouldn't have to come in here and sit alone in a pew. She would just go to the office on Monday and say to the secretary, can I speak with the rabbi? My husband needs to get buried. And then he would call 
10 people in the Hever Kadisha who are already in that committee and they do it. 100%. You're completely <laughs> right. There's no way that this situation would happen. It is in in a podcast that we have, Henry, that is dedicated to exploring the fantastical exploits of <laughs> spandex-wearing characters who have a range of superpowers, travel into space, travel through time, and defy all sorts of laws of physics, this may be the most unbelievable thing I have ever read in a comic book. Oh, yeah. All that stuff is way more believable. This is ridiculous. One, it's Yeah. So thank God this horrible representation is ended by a group of hoodlums that come <laughs> in and attack the rabbi, uh, letting him know the, the really jolly statement, happy fucking Chinooka rabbi. Um, and then they proceed to steal as much gold Judaica as they can. There's a menorah, there are candlestick holders, and one of them says to the other, only Jews could afford a solid gold candle, huh, Monty? Um, so one once again, we have some lovely anti-Semitism going on as these guys are trying to steal these ritual items. On page six, Yara is attempting to stop them, declaring that this is a house of God. Uh, and then we get to, despite all the frustrations I have with all the inaccuracies and all the terrible uh, depictions of Judaism that's not really Judaism, we then get one of the coolest images I think we've ever seen. Um, can you tell us what we have, Henry? Absolutely. I, this, this is going to bring us back. You've got the Sandman with his scary fedora and mask pointing his sleeping gas gun. You're kind of looking down the barrel of it. And behind him is the Ark in the synagogue. And it, in clear Hebrew letters says, Dalifne mi ata omed no before whom you stand with a curtain with two lions holding up the Ten Commandments. And the Sandman says, Foul desecrators of the temple of the God of Hebrews, your criminal acts are testament to your wretchedness. Let your ill-fated hereafter begin in this house of worship. Yeah, I mean, there's like a contrast of his threat with that, but like, what a cool image just seeing him sort of like, like, it's almost as though all of the ancestors on his mother's side of the family are surrounding him and the entirety of Jewish tradition and its call towards justice is just like in the background as he finally is going to stop these hoodlums. And just like, it's a beautiful, beautiful image. Um, as you said, Henry, it's, it's totally accurate. It actually, the Hebrew we see because it's blocked off in part just says like Med. it's it's the leftover bits of like that but as you said we it's clearly from the statement da Med. know before whom you stand um it, i think i mentioned this when we were prepping henry but it feels to me like the artist john k snyder the third did his homework and did it well about judaism and wagner and siegel are writers get an F on their homework. They did not mm -hmm. do a good job prepping for this, but right. uh, at least the art is picking up the slack. Um, right. I mean, there are a couple exceptions, the four cabal, can the candelabra with four branches and sure. Yeah. A couple that's other a fair things, point. But that may be of just what he thought, you know, like a old synagogue would have candelabra to make light. So, you know, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, really amazing image. They just, this is like a badass guy defending the Jews. You like that. It, this is the kind of yeah. content we like. We like seeing it's cool and there's a Jewish accuracy to it. So we like right. it all around. 
And as he's attacking the hoodlums, he says things like, I am a protector of the light, which is just, you know, kind of rivals some of Ramban's declarations or <laughs> uh, or Judas by the sword of Zion. Right. right? It's like a Jewish battle cry. Um, yeah, that's a def- cool thing to hear on Hanukkah, too. 100%. They're definitely playing with Hanukkah themes here um it you know wesley might even be rededicating the temple himself mm-hmm. um and he gives yara the gift of sleep afterwards not as in um not euphemistically but rather he lets her get a good night's sleep this poor woman who's so anxious over her husband lets the rabbi know to keep the candles lit and returns to diane back in his civvies um it goes very Christmassy. but the final panel is a silhouette of the synagogue with a uh it looks like a single can- candle, but I think the idea is that it's just the, the menorah from far away with this candle lit very prominently in the window so that everybody from far away can see it. And I'm not going to lie, that final image is a really wonderful depiction of Pirsume Ness, of advertising the miracle of Hanukkah, right? Like the mitzvah around lighting the menorah is not just to light it in your house, but um, it's even better if you can put it in a window so as to advertise um, the miracle of the Hanukkah season, of the Hanukkah holiday. Um, And so to have that last image actually does a really lovely job um, fulfilling that promise of of publicization. Yeah, and, and they continue a thread that we were talking about earlier about the connection with Diane, his girlfriend. They catch up with each other, and he says, Diane, I, I'm sorry I'm late. And she says, I hope I'll like the reason. And by the way, we get a little Santa in there again. Yeah. But, he's, but anyways, um, he says, I think you will. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. And so that is sort of like the a nice um, end of that little tiny story of him sharing his uh, Jewish life with Diane. That was something that it seemed like it wasn't planned, you know, within the story of himself, you know, going through his day, he wasn't planned days. He wasn't planning on sharing this with her. And now he has a couple times and he wants, sounds like he wants to share more. Like it's to me, it's like where they're teasing really good Jewish content in the future from him. Unfortunately, I don't think we see that, Um, but it was a nice, uh, it's a nice word. It's nice words to hear over that image of the synagogue. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. It's really lovely. I think looking back at this this particular holiday issue uh, total, it was a frustrating experience because this was a mix of some wonderful Jewish content and also some really horrible inaccuracies that completely ruined my enjoyment of this comic. And yeah. Um, that's the holiday special. Uh, Henry, let's just check in. How are we feeling about Wesley Dodds, the Sandman? Yeah, I feel good about the character Wesley Dodds, the Sandman. I feel like the Jewish representation we got from this character was nice, was meaningful, was quality, wasn't frivolous, even though one of them was in a Hanukkah story, which are usually kind of, you know, usually a little disappointing. But um, so, you know, Overall, I think, you know, we've done this before where we've kind of blamed some of the storytellers for not getting it quite right and ruining some really good potential. And so, you know, I would give him, let's say, three and a half to four Magain David's Jewish stars at no fault of the character itself, himself. You know, I think in the hands of, doesn't even need to be Jewish writers, but writers who, like you said, do their homework this he could be a five out of five um jewish character yeah i think 
I'm really glad you brought it up that way because I think it's pretty clear that Wagner and Siegel did do their homework to some degree because you don't get a comic that includes the bedtime Shema and a pretty word by word accurate translation without doing your homework. You don't get a comic about historically accurate involvement of Jewish gangsters with labor unions without doing your homework. This is clearly a very well-researched storyline, and I'm not surprised just based on the overall quality of Sandman Mystery Theater. However, it feels a little bit like a um, anthropologist or sociologist or just academic who has done all their technical homework and read a lot in articles and never actually seen Judaism happening in person, right? feels like it's completely devoid of how Judaism actually works, even if they got a lot of the technical details right. 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 It looks like, like they didn't go to shul with someone. I, I also like you've got it for the Hanukkah one, the winter's edge, whatever you got yeah. eight pages. You get it right. You try to get this as right as you can. Yeah. 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 I agree. It, it's really the amount they got wrong and the amount of, of, buffoonery that sort of goes on is a little shocking when it's only eight pages yeah. um, again it's really the art that sort of saves it right. um the we, last we've seen worse had... we've seen worse and even recently i mean the most recent dc holiday special with tom king's su- supposed hanukkah story was way worse and sure. you know and there's been worse in between but it just it was disappointing it felt like this could have been better yeah, I think that's a good point. So many of these characters we've seen were kind of measuring both their Jewishness as it appears and also their potential for Jewishness. And as you said, Sandman's potential is kind of not off the charts, but it's just it's something new. And that's what I loved about him. I love that Wesley Dodds is bringing us a new flavor of Judaism. Not only do we see new actual aspects of the religion present, um, but we got representation unlike what we've seen before. I, we've mentioned it before, but it really bears repeating to have a character who comes from an interfaith background who doesn't seem in the way the thing was caught up on or angry about his Jewish past. He, he, he honestly seems nonplussed. And there's a way in which it might be surprising that I'm not disappointed that he's not more engaged with his Judaism. But I think it's accurate, right? The, the more Jewish characters you have, the more walks of Jewish life you can represent. And I think it is important to represent somebody who has Jewish connections and is for the most part untroubled by them and not fully engaged. That's accurate to some of life's experience. Um, I hope that we find some characters from an interfaith background who are also deeply involved in their Judaism, because I know a lot of people like that. Um, But I I just, I'm really happy that we have a superhero who is well-adjusted, likable, actually heroic um, and comes from a background that is an interfaith relationship. And how cool is it that canonically a founding member of the justice society of America fought along golden age, Superman and Batman and wonder woman, and, you know, fought the Nazis in the comics is a Jewish superhero. It's wonderful. It's, it's his significance almost outshines any of the particulars we covered today. Just the fact that this character is Jewish, um, it's huge. It's really wonderful to see it. Yeah. So on that note, we've covered Sandman Wesley Dodds. Who's our next character? So next time we're actually doing something a little new. And rather than just doing one character, we're going to be handling 
uh, more than one in what we're calling our quick hits episode, where we're going to be taking some Jewish characters who don't really have a whole lot of Jewish content appearances, but we'll be diving back and forth from one to the next. That sounds great. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No No relation. relation. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Jewish Comics Pod, or you can email us at Jewish Comics Podcast at gmail.com.